Paul, the inspired apostle, when writing to the believers in this church, addresses them in the introduction of this epistle, and he's using terms of admiration and terms of commendation. We can see right away in the opening verses of this chapter here that he speaks about their standing. Their standing is in Christ. He says there in those verses, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ. So here he is referring to that legal position that they have, and it is a legal term, that is being used here. Their standing before God is a standing that is acceptable to God because they're standing in Christ and believers are made acceptable to God and they're accepted by God as being righteous because we are accepted in the beloved, in the Lord Jesus Christ. His righteousness is imputed to those who trust him. But then he goes on to mention their sanctification because he speaks of them here as being saints. And the word that is used here simply means holy. It is a term that indicates they were set apart. They were a people that were separated from worldliness. That is the sense of the meaning of the word that is used here. They've been separated from the attitude of the ungodly world. They're separated from the behavior, from the principles, from the standards of the world. He then speaks of their steadfastness because in that same verse, he calls them faithful. So these people then that he is writing to, uh, they are a people that are faithful. They're faithful to God. And they're faithful to the word of God. And they're faithful to those around and about them uh, in their stand for the gospel. They're faithful in the spreading of the gospel. And so here we have a faithful people. They're steadfast in their stand in Christ. They're steadfast in their sanctification. They're steadfast uh, in their faithfulness to the Lord. He goes on to mention here their society. He refers to that. Uh, he refers to them here as brethren. Uh, all true believers are brethren. They're all in the family of God. And uh, so the reference here really is to those of the same interest and those of the same activity. They are brethren in Christ. And that is their society. That is the, that is the circle that these people in this church move about in. Uh, that is where their fellowship is found. Found amongst other believers. And then he makes mention, too, of their substance. And by substance, I uh, refer to what they were made of. We often hear people today talking about a man or a woman, and they might say, well, they're made of good stuff. It really means that their character is good. And, of course, the character here, the substance of these believers in this church, in this church here at Colossae, uh, they are those who, in the first four, are commended for their faith and they're commended for their love. So the substance of these believers, what they're made of, their uh, whole uh, personality, if you like, spiritually speaking, uh, is, is their faith. They're known for their faith. They have a reputation for their faith in the Lord. They have a reputation for their love for God and their love for the things of God. And then, of course, in the first six there, he goes on to speak of their fruitfulness. 
Mention is made here of them bringing forth fruit. And of course, there is reference here, no doubt, to the fruit of righteousness or the fruit of the Spirit as it is found over there in Galatians 5 and the 22nd, 23rd verse there, uh, that fruit of the Spirit that believers ought to exhibit, that ought to be found uh, within their living, that which is love and joy and peace and long-suffering and gentleness and goodness and faith and meekness and temperance, uh, these things that make up the believer, makes the believer to have that good a character before others and that which is pleasing to the Lord. And so the apostle has much to thank the Lord for when he thinks about these believers in this church now that he is writing to. But in these verses, the first 20 through to 22, he brings these believers back to when they were unsaved sinners. And he reminds them of how they were in those days. They were unsaved and uh, what they are now, how they have been reconciled to God. And I want to take these verses tonight and just for a very short time consider this doctrine that we have in these verses, the doctrine of reconciliation to God. Certainly we have before us in these verses the need of reconciliation. That's where uh, the Apostle Paul starts when he presents the gospel. He starts to talk there about what the sinner is in the verse 21. He says, And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, ye who were sometime, or he's talking about the time in the past. There was a time, there was some time in your life before you were saved. That's what is meant by this term, sometime. He brings them back to that time uh, when they were unsaved. And he marks that particular condition that they were in by these two phrases. They were alienated and they were enemies to God. They were aliens to God. The word means strangers. It means a person that doesn't belong to a particular country or doesn't belong to a particular people. They're not part of that particular society. And so in this case, the sinner, man in his natural sinful uh, condition, he is alienated from God. He is separated from God, uh, as we have it there in Isaiah 59, the second verse. Uh, the sinner has no part with God. He has no friendship with God. He has no union with God. He has no uh, communion with God. The same term is used in Ephesians in the chapter 4 and the verse 18 there, and it speaks of being alienated from the life of God. That's how the unsaved person is, alienated from the life of God. That is that life that is given by God, spiritual life, eternal life. The unsaved sinner has no spiritual life. He hasn't that life that God gives. He is no eternal life. He is not ready for heaven. Ephesians 2, the verse 12, speaking again of this same thought of being aliens to God, being alienated from God, we read in that verse of the unsaved person without hope. He has no hope. He is without Christ. He is without God in this world. He has no hope of heaven. He is living without God. 
God is not in your thoughts. God is not in your plans, dear unsaved one. You are alienated from God. No fellowship with God, no friendship with God, no communion with God, dear unsaved. That's how it is with you, even here tonight, or listening on uh, on social media or whatever. That is your state before God. And then, of course, it says here that such are the enemies of God in that verse 21. Not only separated from God, but against God. Do you see, the disposition of the sinner is against God. The bias of the mind of the sinner is a bias that is against God. Against God's word disobedient to the word of God, a hardness against the word of God, a rebellion against the word of God. Ephesians 2 and the first 2 puts it like this. They're walking according uh, to this ungodly world, walking according to the principles, to the practices of this ungodly world, walking according to the will of the devil, that is doing the, the bidding of the devil, walking in disobedience to the Lord. Yes, and against the very work of redemption, the work of Christ on the cross, because we have it there in Philippians 3 and the verse 18, where those who are aliens to God and those who are the enemies of God, they're the enemies of the cross, the enemies of the very work of the Lord Jesus Christ, that work that he did in order to save sinners from eternal damnation and hell, the unsaved are against that. They have no part in that. They don't want that. They don't, don't want to hear about the cross work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here on saved, here is your position. And that is why you need to be reconciled to God. Because you are separated from God. You are against God. But then we have also here the ground of reconciliation. How is a person to be reconciled to God. What is the basis? What is the ground of that? Well, it is what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. It is Christ who reconciles us to God. That's what we're reading here in these verses. How does the Lord Jesus Christ reconcile us to God? Look at what it says here. In the verse 21, the verse 22, and you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked, by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death. In his body through death. It brings us to the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. He was obedient unto death even the death of the cross. That's what we read in Philippians 2 and in, and in the first 8. If we look there to the first 20 that we read together, we read, and having made peace through the blood of his cross, reconciled to God on the basis of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. People, sin offends God. It offends his absolute holiness. It offends his justice. Sin, therefore, separates us from God. And before man can be reconciled to God and be at peace with God, then sin must be dealt with. The penalty of sin brings 
the fourth death. And that penalty must be paid. The penalty of sinner's death, the wages of sinner's death. That's what God tells us. And the stain of sin must be removed. And at Calvary, that price was paid. The Lord Jesus Christ paid the price. Having lived a sinless life, he bore our sins in his own body on the three as our substitute. And there he satisfied the justice of God on our behalf. That is, on behalf of all of those who would repent of their sin and put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and his work to save them. The justice of God has declared the wages of sinner's death. The justice of God has declared the soul that sinneth, it shall die. But the Lord Jesus Christ, as the sinner's substitute, went to the cross and he bore the wrath of God that was the portion that was due to the sinner. He bore that wrath of God and he turns that wrath of God away from those who will put their trust in him. People, that is what is spoken of here. That is the very ground of redemption. Christ offered himself up as a sacrifice to satisfy that justice of God and to turn the wrath of God away from us so that we should be at peace with God. But then we have the effect of reconciliation. We can see here people how this is the case. Reconciliation, that's the subject that the apostle is writing about. Reconciliation by the blood of Jesus Christ, that's the subject he's writing about. Reconciliation by the blood of the cross, the cross work of Christ. No other way to be reconciled to God. Only by the precious blood. In fact, when we go back into the Old Testament, we find the very same thing is taught. If we go back to Second Chronicles and the chapter 29, let me read to you here the 23rd verse and the verse 24. And we read here, And they brought forth the he-goats for the sin offering before the king and the congregation, and they laid their hands upon them. And then we read, And the priests killed them, and they made reconciliation with their blood upon the altar to make an atonement for all Israel. They made reconciliation. How was that reconciliation made? By their blood upon the altar. The atonement. The covering for sin. Reconciliation to God. It is only and always has been upon the ground of the precious blood, the blood of the altar. My friend is speaking there in the Old Testament of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ where he shed his blood. The blood of the cross is the term that is used. 
So that right throughout the Old and the New Testament, we have this thought before us continually. From the opening chapters of the book of Genesis to, through to the closing verses and chapters of Revelation, this whole theme is before us. Reconciliation to God. Man needs to be reconciled to God. He's a sinner by nature. He's against God by nature. He needs to be reconciled to God but he can only be reconciled to God on the basis of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done on Calvary. He shed his precious blood that sinners could be cleansed from sin. That's the ground of reconciliation. But we have, as we have already said, the effect of reconciliation. What we are made to be. When we're reconciled to God, on the basis of what Christ has done. We are new creatures in Christ Jesus. That's what the term is there in 2 Corinthians 5 and 17. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. People, that is the very essence of what this Greek word translated reconciliation means. The Greek word itself, it means to change thoroughly from. When we're thinking about reconciliation, we're thinking about a person being changed thoroughly from what they once were to what they are now. Changed thoroughly from being sinners bound for hell to being the children of God bound for heaven. A complete change. If you look at the verse 13 of this chapter 1, it reads there, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and has translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son. A complete change. Translated, delivered us from the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, or as we find it put in First Peter, the second chapter, and the first nine, called out of darkness into his marvelous light. A complete change. Out of the family of the devil into God's family. Devil is no longer our father, rather God is our heavenly father. We have a new standing with God. We're accepted and we're robed in the perfect righteousness of his dear Son. We have new life. We're living on to God. New desires, desires to please the Lord. New friends, those who are found in the family of the Lord. We have new activities serving the Lord. People, that's the substance of reconciliation. It's a complete change. And then we read here in these verses also that we're presented to God the Father at the end of life's journey. Look at how we are presented, the verse 22. We are presented there to God the Father in holiness. We read the verse, reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable, and unreprovable in his sight. What a powerful term it is, presented to God the Father, holy, 
unblameable, unreprovable. That's how we will be when we enter heaven. We will be conformed to Christ's likeness. Oh, what a wonderful change that will be. Just like Christ. Just like Christ in who is absolutely holy and harmless and undefiled, as we read of him in Hebrews 7 and 26. The one who is without spot and without blemish. Look at that word unblameable. That word and the Greek word that is used there, it means unblemished. It means without spot or blemish. Exactly how Christ is described. Made perfectly holy, not a trace of sin. That's how we will be presented by God, presented to God the Father. When we come to leave this old sinful world, dear child of God, this is how we will be presented in the glory land. We will be conformed to the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then this word unreprovable, it means not accused. We're not accused by God. We're not accused by the law of God because Christ's death has satisfied the justice and the law of God on our behalf. Reconciled to God, this is how we will enter into heaven. Perfect, presented perfect, absolutely without spot or blemish. What a salvation this is. People, what a saviour the Lord Jesus Christ is. So the, the question surely tonight must be, is he your saviour? People gathered into this little gospel meeting, is he your saviour? Do you know what it is to be reconciled to God? Or maybe you're still living as the enemy of God. Maybe you're still living against God. Maybe tonight you've turned away the furry call of God in the gospel. When the Lord has called you to come to him and the Lord Jesus Christ called you personally and he said, come on to me, all ye that labor are heavy laden and I will give you rest. But you've turned away from that call. The Lord in his mercy has sought you out. He has separated you, so to speak, and put his hand upon you. The Spirit of God has opened your heart and your understanding and has strived with you, showing you your own sin, showing you the condition that you're in, showing you the danger you're in because of your sin, the work of the Holy Spirit. And he has opened your understanding so that you could, you could see Christ. And tonight, in your mind's eye, you have an understanding of the Lord Jesus Christ and his work on Calvary, his love, his mercy, his grace. You understand something of what the apostle said of Jesus Christ when he said, he loved me and gave himself for me. But oh, tonight you've rebelled against that and you're still living as the enemies of God and still having no part with God. How often the Lord has invited you by saying to you and giving to you the promise that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And yet you have refused that offer. You have refused to call. And tonight you're still unsaved. What a salvation this is, and yet you reject it. What a perfect Savior Christ is, 
and yet you reject him. Tell me, friend, how do you stand with him tonight? When the apostle commenced to write to these people, he was able to talk of them as being in Christ. Are you in Christ tonight? Are you in him who is the beloved? Have you a standing in Christ that is pleasing to Almighty God and acceptable to Almighty God? Are you in Christ or are you out of Christ? Are you bound for heaven or are you bound for hell? People, where do you stand tonight? Oh, that this very hour you would look to the Lord and to his mercy, that you might look to the Lord in your repentance, acknowledging what you are, a sinner, and that you might call on the Lord and put your trust in him. Oh, that God in his mercy would save you and write these things in your heart that you might know much of his presence and much of the blessings of salvation and the blessings that flow from salvation, flow from Christ through his salvation. May the Lord write his word upon our hearts tonight.